Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have part two in our series, A New Way to Be Human, where we're looking at what it means to be uh, fully human, fully engaged from the Spirit of God in our regular, ordinary, everyday lives. Uh, A couple of announcements here coming up this uh, Saturday. We have a church work day, so if you want to come out between 9 and 12 and help us do some uh, repairs and cleaning on the facility, please show up. We would appreciate your help. And then also we've got a baptism service this Sunday following church. So if you would like to get baptized, just contact us through the website, northshorevineyard.org. But for now, let's go ahead and head to the talk. Thanks for listening. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. This morning, we're going to continue uh, our series on a new way to be human. And basically, this series is about the implications of the incarnation of Jesus in our everyday life. That may sound like a daunting theological kind of idea, but basically, we're talking about what it means to be truly human and truly inhabited by the Spirit of God and the barriers to that. In, in our life, you know, God created you as a human being. Like it, he, he doesn't intend for you to be an angel. Uh, that's not His plan, <laughs> or an animal. He wants you to be fully human. And Jesus was the, kind of the ultimate picture of this. Uh, today, I've titled the the message "The Medium." <laughs> the medium is the message. Have uh, anybody heard of a, a, a? This was a, a, a communications guru back in the '60s named Marshall McLuhan. Anybody ever heard that name? Marshall McLuhan uh, came out with a revolutionary concept. He said, the medium is the message. You're like, what the heck does that mean? Well, here's what it means. Oftentimes, we tend to look at various forms of media in our culture, whether TV, internet, uh, bumper stickers, books, any kind of thing out there that can communicate a message, and we look at it as neutral. In other words, uh, it's kind of like the, the saying in the NRA, guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? Uh, the idea in that saying is that a gun is an inanimate object that has no sense of will. A gun doesn't kill anybody. It's people who pick up these guns who kill people, right? So a, a deranged lunatic with a gun will kill people. A, an, an officer with a gun might kill people as well. But, but hopefully in, in the, the protection of people. The gun itself, under the, under the thinking of that term, is that, that it's, it's just a neutral object. But Marsh McLuhan, he says, we can never think of any medium as, as simply neutral. In fact, the medium itself is a message that will transform us in fundamental ways that the message never would. And that's what's sneaky. Some of you are still like, where are you going with this, dude? (laughs) So, for instance, and this is where I think Marshall McLuhan was really a prophet in a sense. These words were prophetic because what we found out, and modern modern brain scientists and neurologists, who are studying the human mind, they find that, that, I don't know where they found these people, but they found some people a few years ago who'd never used Google or Wikipedia, and they put them in a brain scanner, and they said within 10 minutes of using Google, your brain starts to make new connections. Very quickly. It, have any of y'all noticed that it's getting harder to concentrate on anything for more than five minutes? Is it just me? 
I mean, something in the last 10 years, like, I, I love reading books. I read a lot of books in my life. I've got stacks of books in, in my office. I've got to get more bookshelves to hold all the books that I have. I love reading, but I'm telling you, it's getting harder to read. It's getting really hard to sit down and pay attention to anything for more than five minutes. You know why? Because by our use of the internet all the time and the the incorporated technologies like this guy, uh, we are actually rewiring our brain on a physiological level. There are actual physical changes happening in our brain from interacting with media. So while we may be tempted to look at the internet as, oh, it's just a blank canvas, it's neither good nor bad, understand that our interaction with the internet uh, is altering our, our, our human existence in ways that the messages on the internet may never touch us. And, and if the medium really is the message, if this concept is true, and I believe that it is true, then we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean uh, concerning the church? If the medium, if the way that we create, if the way we convey the message is every bit as important as the message itself, then what does church say to people? You know, in the evangelical church, which I proudly, uh, at least proudly sometimes, uh, call myself a part, uh, the evangelical church in America has made great emphasis on uh, a response to the gospel, or, or certain beliefs or doctrines. Probably the biggest example of this would be like a Billy Graham crusade. The whole Billy Graham crusade is focused on getting you to this one point of admitting you're a sinner and then saying the sinner's prayer. So you can make a decision in your mind or maybe even outwardly profess that you want to uh, be a Christian. But the unintended consequences is that we've made the sole focus of Christianity and evangelicalism about making a decision in your mind. And I've seen this time and time again. I've been part of churches that do great big crusades to get everybody to come up and say the sinner's prayer and get saved. And, and i got to tell you, most of the people that come forward within a couple of weeks, they got nothing. You know, Jesus... Let's think about this. Jesus, when he meets Peter or Matthew or, or, or James, what did he say to him? Did he come up to Peter and say, Peter, do you know you're a sinner? You know, God's angry at you. You've sinned. You've fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin. Did he walk him down the Romans road? Well, the Romans road didn't exist at that point. Jesus didn't try to convince Peter that I'm the son of God and you need to, you need to receive me into your heart, Peter. What did he say to Peter? He said, Peter... Follow me. In other words, the idea that you could just give mental assent to the ideas of Christianity and that be of any credit to your life was foreign to the, to the early church. There was no sense like you could just believe right thoughts about Jesus and not actually embody them. The very call of Jesus required not just saying, I agree with you, Jesus. Yeah, you're the son of God. Jesus said, well, yeah, well, even the, even the demons of hell believe I'm the son of God. It makes no difference in their reality. The thing that matters is that you actually have an embodied faith. And I think this is where the evangelical church is, is really becoming an excarnate religion. Excarnate, it's a, it's a, it's a word that's kind of, the, let's call it the opposite of incarnate. If incarnate means embodied faith, then excarnate is a, is a faith that is divorced from your life. It's just in your mind. I, I, years ago... 
when I was going to the vineyard on the South Shore, they sent me and Dina to a conference to check out this, this phenomenon called multi-site services that a lot of churches are doing around the country. And basically, uh, it's, it's a great strategy in one sense. It makes practically a lot of sense that, that you know, hey, when you, you outgrow a building, you don't have to build a huge building. You can just open up a satellite campus, and then you put a video of the pastor up there. And... I've actually seen that, that there are churches now that are doing franchises. The, Andy Stanley out of, out of Georgia, Mark Driscoll up in Seattle, they're actually doing franchises. You can pay a, a, a small fee to them or, or a large fee, uh, and, and as long as you agree to show their videos at your church a certain amount of the time, you can be a franchise thing. And I'm thinking, this is great. I would have to not produce that many messages. But the thing is that, that what we're saying in the evangelical church is that the sermon is the point of this thing. The sermon is, is, the, is the high point of the service. Like all we do here on a Sunday morning is get together so we can listen to a message and give mental assent to it. That's excarnate. And I think the, the media, the, the, the medium of the message, the way that we convey the church, it, it, it contributes to consumerism. It contributes to people just treating church as some kind of religious project. I need to just go get a little religion on a Sunday morning, right? Or maybe I believe the right things about this issue. You know, a few weeks ago, we did Bag Hunger. Uh, Bag Hunger, for those of you that, that are new here, we did this outreach where we passed out around you know, 1,800 bags in the community to collect food for the food bank, and then we got here on a Sunday morning. Now, this was the first time, we've done this outreach probably seven or eight times over the last few years. This was the first time where we actually picked up the bags on a Sunday morning, and, and there was a lot of people came up like, oh, did we cancel church today? I said, no, we didn't cancel church. This is church. Well... Well, where's the, where's the message? This is the message. And the message is an embodied message. Because if you were listening that morning, you heard the message. And what was the message? The message is that we want hungry people to be fed. Because we believe that's Jesus kind of stuff. But it wasn't an intellectual message. It was an actual doing message. When we got together and we sat around and we ate jambalaya, that was a message too. What was that a message about? It was a message that community matters, that, that we need to, to get into each other's lives. We need to share life together. That's an embodied message. Now, it feels very different from us because we've, we've, we've come to this place where, where we, we feel like, ah, you can't have church unless there's a band and a, and a message and it better be a good message and you've got to pass the offering and stuff. Uh, that, that can be church. That's part of it, okay? I'm not saying that. But I'm interested even in the coming months of trying to redefine some of the, the things that we have put on church where we've kind of gotten in a rut sometimes, I believe, so that we can have a more embodied faith. Because when I look at Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate picture of the incarnation. I mean, he is the incarnation, right? <laughs> Think about this. Oftentimes, we think about the Bible being kind of really the way the Muslims think about the Quran. The Muslims, they feel like the Quran was this book that was dictated by God, directly downloaded into the Prophet Muhammad's brain, and he, he didn't type it out, he, 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 he wrote this thing out verbatim, word for word, the way he received it from God. 
But we Christians believe something very different. I mean, we've got the Bible, by the way, but it's, it's 66 books written by many more than 60 different authors. But, but the amazing thing in the, in, in the Bible is that God didn't just give us the message. He didn't just send some prophet that said, okay, everybody love one another, love God, love people, forgive people, like that's the most important. Instead, we see the amazing, like, good news that that God actually steps into our world. The Word becomes flesh. And so the message of Jesus is as much His actual presence in this world as it was the words that He spoke. Actually, I think the, the, the life of Jesus, the incarnation, the Word becoming flesh was more of a message than even the words that Jesus spoke. And oftentimes we're guilty of divorcing the words of Jesus from the Word we're guilty of taking the words of Jesus and divorcing them from the ways of Jesus. And when we do that, we end up with something oftentimes that is antichrist. Jesus didn't just say, love your enemies. I, you know, we understand this. Jesus was not like some spiritual guru sitting over on the edge of, of the desert muttering wise sayings to his disciples. He wasn't just saying, Love your enemies, and you will find the secrets of life. <laughs> Jesus was actually doing it. Jesus didn't just say, love your enemies. He actually loved his enemies. Jesus didn't just say, forgive people. Hello? He was hanging up on a cross with nails hammered into his hands, hanging up naked, beaten, bloody in front of the whole world, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't even get what they're doing right now. We would call that not theoretical forgiveness or abstract forgiveness. That's the real deal embodied forgiveness. Jesus didn't just tell people to have mercy and compassion on others. He demonstrated everywhere Jesus went, he showed compassion and mercy. So when you see Jesus eating dinner with all the wrong kinds of people, the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, all the other disreputable riffraff, that was a message. Do you hear that message? When Jesus broke the cultural and religious taboos of his day by talking to this adulterous Samaritan woman in the middle of the day, that was a message in and of itself. This is what God's like. He's not the God that is on your nationalistic, ethnic agenda, your religious side anymore. He's the God that is breaking through every stinking boundary that we can put up. Don't shout me down all at once. <laughs> when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, that in and of itself was a message. What was the message? The message was Philippians 2. That though being equal with God, he did not consider his equality with, with God something to be exploited or used to his own advantage, but rather he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. This God who has created the universe steps into our world and puts on a towel and washes the dirty, funky feet of his disciples because he's saying, this is what God is like. And this is what the power of God 
actually looks like. It's not Rambo. It's not guns. It's not tanks. It's servant love. It's humility. And it's the most powerful force in the universe. We can divorce the words of Jesus from the life of Jesus and we miss the point of Jesus. Jesus was the word become flesh. He was the medium that was the message. Are you hearing me? Okay. I know, I know because of the internet, y'all tuned out like, five, you know, five minutes into this thing. <laughs> First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 6, this is from the message. Listen to this. The, wor- the world is unprincipled. It's dog-eat-dog dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair, but we don't live or fight the battles that way. Never have and never will. The tools of our trade aren't, aren't for marketing or manipulation, but they are for demolishing that entirely, massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of the life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. Paul says, we have these powerful weapons and they're not the we-, we don't fight the way that the world fights. The, wi- the world fights with, with guns, with manipulations, with accusations. He said, we don't do that. But we take these thoughts, these ideas, we take them and we make them captive to Christ. We make them bow their knee before Jesus. And I want to look at a few ideas and philosophies that have become kind of the water that we swim in in the modern church. And I want us to, to make these ideas obey Jesus Christ this morning. So I'm going to go through a quick list and... And uh, so we don't have to keep the kids back there. I got in trouble last week. So I'm going to try to wrap the last 20 minutes of this up in seven minutes. So there's a few things that, that we need to pay attention to that are barriers to an incarnate life. Things that will, will, will push us into a disembodied spirituality. That, that sounds so freaky. Uh, an excarnate faith. <laughs> Number one is dualism. We have this idea that, that seems very natural to us that there's a, a sacred and a secular. Like you've got like Christian music and then Journey. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the Jewish mindset in, in the Old Testament, there's no kind of sacred or secular, <laughs> secular. There was no dichotomy between those things. They weren't pitted against each other. It wasn't like science or faith. It's like, it's all God's. And we have this, this idea that, that only what we do that's spiritual or only, you know, like when we come to church and sing songs, that's the spiritual sphere of our life. And then I go to my real job. No. Dualism is a barrier to an incarnate lifestyle, an embodied faith. Um, intellectualism. Intellectualism, I don't mean just like being intellectual, but, but the idea that faith is primarily a belief system, primarily ideas, doctrines, and theology. You know, I, I'm very tempted towards this. I love reading theology. I love reading some stuff that would put you to sleep in like two minutes. Actually, I'm taking a trip today. I've got an audio book of... Uh, Theodore Dostoevsky's The Brother Karamazov. And I know, like, when I want the kids to stop fighting, I'm just going to put that on the audiobook. It's going to be brilliant. They have peace and quiet. Uh, 
But there's, there's a way to, to have, you know, on my teaching team, I love the fact on my teaching team, I'm the only person in full-time pastoral church ministry. The rest of my team, we got a contractor, a guy who runs a plumbing supply warehouse, uh, a lawyer, a stay-at-home mom. And, and sometimes when I'm tempted to get real excited about theological abstractions, they, they're like, dude, what does this mean to regular people? And I love that. Because there is a temptation to keep our, our, our Christianity only in the level of the mind. To think great thoughts, maybe even right thoughts, maybe perfectly correct doctrine, and then have no uh, connection with the rest of our life. The other side of this would be emotionalism. Uh, I, I find that there's a trend throughout the church where, where people are going from one emotional experience to another, trying to, to feed this high. And then when emotionalism and intellectualism uh, combine together, we have something called slacktivism. You ever heard of slacktivism? Slacktivism, used to, there was this thing called activism. And it's where like, you would see the problems in, you, in the world and you would actually go out and do something, right? Like actually, like, you know, go help. Make the world a better place. Slacktivism is when you're on Facebook and, and you see some story about hungry people in the community and you're like, oh, I'm opposed to that. I vote for this guy. Like. And then you're like, I did something. <laughs> Not really. Not so much. You liked something on Facebook. That didn't change the world. That didn't even change your world. <laughs> You see a story about human trafficking. I like these guys. I like, these. I like what they're doing. Yay! I did something for human trafficking today. Not really. You like something on Facebook. That's slacktivism. It feels good. It feels like we're making the world a better place because we had some emotional, intellectual reaction to, to a, a piece of information that was prevent, presented to us, but we didn't actually do anything, right? That leads us into an excarnate faith instead of an incarnate faith. Because we exercise our emotion and our, our intellect towards something that's a problem, but we don't actually do anything. You know, if we had just, that's one reason when we did the bag hunger thing. I could have just had the lady from the food bank come over here take an offering. And, and you know, they, they might have got just as much money to buy food as, as the food that we collected here on a Sunday morning. But I wanted us to actually do something. I think it's too easy for us to just drop a check in sometimes. We need to like actually get out there, get our hands dirty. That's what Jesus did. Okay. Next one's Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is something you may think like, what's that? You know, Gnosticism is, is the, it's an ancient Greek philosophy, religion kind of thing that, that grew up alongside Christianity. For the first couple of hundred years of the church, it was considered the greatest heresy that Christianity faced. And I believe it's still the greatest heresy that Christianity faced. Gnosticism says this. Now, when I give you the definitions of Gnosticism, you're going to think, wait, that sounds like most of the churches I've grown up in. Here's the idea. Gnosticism says that this, that this whole physical material world is, is uh, evil. That the only thing in you that matters is your soul. And that you need some secret knowledge or experience to escape your, so your soul can be set free and go off to a disembodied eternity. Now for a lot of you, that may sound like the way you've heard the gospel your whole life. Jesus came to free your soul so you can go to a disembodied heaven when you die. That's not 
It's Gnosticism. The early church fathers were very, very, very clear that Jesus came in the flesh and that when he resurrected, he had a fleshly body. And at the end of the day, we're all going to be resurrected with the upgraded fleshly bodies. But we're going to, you know, like, like it's an embodied reality. And here's what Gnosticism does often in our culture. People are looking for secret super revelation, talking to angels and, and, and having you know, secret insight into, the, like the, the prophet said this, but what they really meant was this thing. And we get excited about that. Or maybe going from one religious spiritual experience to the next. And look, I spent a lot of my journey doing this. It feels good to have you know, these great encounters with God, but then we begin making that the basis of our faith. And guess what? I've seen this happen over and over again. You start going that path, you lose touch with the rest of the world. You become so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. I've been around Christians. They can't carry on a conversation with anybody who's not in their little group. Because they've, 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 they've so gone into this Gnostic way of thinking, and, and, and they've so devalued the rest of the world. Here's, the, here's one of the problems. Even the, the, the rapture ideas that are common in, in America, left behind and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a way of viewing the world that the whole world's going to burn up and die, and it doesn't matter. So God doesn't love it. The only thing God ma- that matters to God is your soul. The only thing God loves is your soul, and so we're just going to hang on until Jesus comes back and raptures us and takes us to the sweet by and by. That's a dominant idea in America right now. The problem is you buy into that, this world doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And I believe that the, that the, the idea of Scripture is that, no, this world does matter. God created it. God so loved the, the, the souls of his favorite people on the planet. No, God so loved the world. In the end of this thing, we're going to see that God restores the entire cosmos. It'll be a new heaven and a new earth. But, but we, as, as people who follow Jesus, are meant to plunge ourselves into the issues of our world. We're supposed to care about the environment. We're supposed to care about the economy. We're supposed to care about people going into sexual slavery. We're supposed to care about these things that matter to actual human beings outside the church. Because we love this world. We believe it's good and that God created it. It's messed up right now. It's fallen. We don't write it off. Oh, nobody shot me down now. I'm hitting on something. Mm-hmm. The other thing that goes hand in hand with Gnosticism is escapism. It's looking to church as an escape. I, I, I talked to a friend of mine a, a while back. He's a great worship leader, good songwriter, and he went to a particular church out in California that does a whole lot of worship, and he, he just spent a lot of time out there, and he comes back. He's like, oh, man, dude, like, I, I want to, I, I got this idea, man. I want to raise money. I want to raise support so I can just go out to this church and just, just do nothing but worship 24-7. I'm like, number one, like, you got a wife and three kids, like, who wouldn't want to just, like, grab a guitar and worship? I mean, like, maybe some of y'all wouldn't. But, uh, you know, if you're into worship, like, I, I get that. Like, oh, that'd be so great. But that's, that's actually running from the world. <laughs> that's escaping life. You know, it's like when Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He's like, this is the best thing ever. Let's, br- let's build a few spots and stay up here. And Jesus is like, no, we've got to go back down the mountain. Because <laughs> the real action's down there. You got a glimpse of something here, but this isn't, this isn't where you're going to stay. You're going to go back into reality just the same way Jesus did. You're going to be salt and light in the world, not escaping it. Sometimes our Gnostic ideas, they're, they're there because they appeal to us because we hate the, the world. We, we hate the pain of it. 
We hate the, the way it doesn't make sense, and bad guys seem to win sometimes. The last one that, that we have is individualism. In America, this is probably one of the most rampant things that we have. You're, you're told in evangelical churches, the, the thing that matters is your personal relationship with God. You need to have a personal uh, one-on-one relationship with God. And, and look, I believe a personal relationship with God is, is important, but it ain't everything. Oh, this is sounding like heresy to some people today, too. You realize in the early church, we got this idea, like, like the average Christian home has like, I don't know, three to five Bibles. The average American home, actually, not just Christian. Uh, we got Bibles everywhere. And we got this idea, like, I'm just going to sit down and have my personal time with the Lord. In the early church, there was no such thing as, like, a personal time with the Lord. Uh, chances are, if you existed in the first century of Palestine, most of you wouldn't know how to read, okay? And if you lived in some town around Jerusalem or in Asia Minor, you might be lucky in your little village to have a couple of scrolls from the Old Testament, maybe a letter from Paul. But it would do you no good individually because you had to find somebody who knew how to read it. So you'd get together with a bunch of other followers of Jesus and they would open up the scroll and they would read it. You would hear the word of God together. You would dialogue about it together. There was no sense like, God just told me this in my quiet time this morning. No, you would actually be anchored in community. And I think individuality is one of those things that keeps us in a disembodied, excarnate faith worse than anything. Because we just think that it can just be me and God. It's just me and Jesus, you know. But it's not. God called us to be in relationship with one another. It's messy. It's tough. And I want to become a Gnostic a lot of times just escape it all. But that's the place where we learn Jesus. That's where we are transformed It's not just me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus and Skip and Dina and Pat. (laughs) You put all those together, there's going to be some transformation happening. (laughs) There is. Okay, I'm going to get quickly close. This is the remedy or the series of remedies. And by the way, I would just say this is, this is all based on Jesus because we're bringing these, these ideas, these philosophies to, uh, to, to bow before Jesus. Number one, everything is spiritual. What? I, everything I say, it sounds like heresy today, I know. Everything is spiritual. There's a way of looking at the world where like, oh, well, like, there's my Jesus time and then there's changing the diapers of my kids. No, there's the, everything's spiritual. So whether you're changing the diapers of your kids, standing in line at Walmart, uh, about to meet a client, uh, making love with your spouse, that whole reality is encompassed by God. And these things can become moments where you experience the divine if you don't have this dualistic divide. Lord, what are you doing? Secondly, look and listen for God everywhere. You know, last week, after church, I got invited to go play a, a kind of a private music festival thing that's been going on for about 20 years, and uh, uh, I was the only keyboard player, so it's great when you're the only keyboard player because you sound really good. <laughs> Andy knows what I'm talking about, right? You know, it's <laughs> uh, So I played with a rotating cast of some amazing musicians, and I was the new guy there. It wasn't, I mean, I met a couple of Christians there, but it was, not, it was by no means a Christian thing. Um, there was a few people that were, you know, doing some very non-Christian things there. Um, but I got to tell you, 
I didn't look at like, oh, I've done my spiritual stuff up at church. Now I'm going to unwind and just be a regular musician guy. No, I looked at the whole day as a spiritual day. So I spent, you know, the first part of my day playing worship with musicians here. And then I spent the rest of the day doing, you know, blues songs and all kinds of stuff with other musicians. But I got to tell you, I, I, I sense God in all of it in a profound way. I remember going home and going to bed that night. Just my heart was overflowing with joy. God, I encountered you in the conversations with some people that were not even Christian. I encountered your hospitality through other people. There was moments where we were playing music. Like I was just doing an old hymn and the guy who organized the event, he came up there with tears in his eyes and just had everybody stop and have a moment of silence. But it's because I didn't, I was looking for God everywhere. Because, hello, where's God? Everywhere. everywhere. Learning the ways of reflection and con- contempl- con- 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 contemplation. <laughs> you know, learning how to sit still. This is one of those things where. Uh, just learning. Try this. It's going to be difficult. Try sitting down for 15 minutes and be quiet at the end of your day and to reflect over your day. I think it was Plato who said this, that the unexamined life is, isn't worth living. We, we did a, an exercise with our leadership team over the summer of, of praying the prayer of examine. It's a, a Jesuit prayer. Basically, you just replay your whole day and you look for God in it. And it's amazing. Every time I do this, I see God in some areas where I, I didn't see him in the moment. And I also see some other stuff that, you know, sometimes like I was motivated by things that weren't of God. Learn how to set aside some time to just turn off technology and get quiet. Pay attention to your life. Next one, don't support issues online unless you're engaged, engaged in them in real life. Can we make that a rule? Today, when you're tempted to like something on Facebook, there's an actual issue in your community, like where you could actually do something, don't like it or oppose it unless you're willing to walk out the door and do something, okay? That keeps you from an excarnate faith, that keeps you in an incarnate faith. Affirm the goodness of God wherever you find it, even if it's demonstrated in people who are not Christians. You know, this is one thing that I found. You know, as an evangelical Christian, I used to look at people that weren't Christians as projects. Oh, I'm just going to share the faith with you, get you to believe these ideas. You know, like, I really didn't care about people. I was just like, you know, I'm just looking for an angle to get my sales pitch in. And, uh, and then if I could get you to, 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 to say yes, then I would never bother you again. <laughs> But now, i got to tell you, the funnest thing is when you, when you understand that God is everywhere and God is moving in everybody's lives, and when you begin to look for Him, you can begin to affirm the goodness of God everywhere, whether it's, just in Christi- whether it's in a Christian or somebody who doesn't even follow Jesus. I found myself in this opportunity many times. And so now, instead of looking at somebody as, some, as, a, as a project or someone I've got to uh, you know, sell Jesus on, now I look for the evidence of God in their life. Man, it's like this, this community I was with this last weekend. I, I told some of the people, I, you know, because the guy was th- that put it on, he's not a Christian. He was joking with me. He said, yeah, this is my church. I was like, I love your church. I wish the church could be more like your church. I was affirming the goodness of God because what I saw there was a community of people who were really loving one another. I came in as a stranger and I was welcomed in. 
Affirm the goodness of God. When you're in conversations with coworkers and you hear something that reminds you of Jesus, affirm that. Dude, what you just said, that reminds me of Jesus. They don't have to believe in Jesus, but get in the habit of affirming God wherever you see it. That keeps you from a disembodied faith. Last one. See your desires as a gateway to the divine. I could do a whole message on this. I may. But, but, but see, you know, our desires, as, as C.S. Lewis uh, put it in his book, The Weight of Glory, we, we have a, a desire for a flower that, that we haven't yet smelled. You know, we, we've, he said it better than that. I forget. Uh, <laughs> When we hear a song, when we see a movie, when we're captivated by a sunset or the stars in the sky or maybe even a, having a great meal with friends, those desires themselves are a gateway to God. Our problem is oftentimes we actually look at the conduits of the, our desires, the thing that can feel, fulfill them. That person can't fulfill your desires. That movie can't. Uh, just worshiping nature is not going to do that. We need to follow these desires to where they go, which is the Creator. So let's look at our desires even, not as a good thing or a bad thing, but as a gateway. God put those things in our heart. They're not opposed to Him. They can be sinful. They can be corrupted. But these these longings that we have are a gateway to God. Stand up. i got to shut up. Oh, they're going to hate me back there. Okay. Back when we had two services, I was quicker. I'm sorry. Lord, we, we, we thank you for, for meeting with us this morning. God, we pray that you would lead us as individuals and as a community on ways to embody our faith, that our faith wouldn't be in our, in our emotions or our heads only, but, but it would be a powerful demonstration to this world of what you're like and how you behave, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like someone to pray for you, pray with you, pray on you, pray, no, pray, pray for you. Come up here to the front. And if you've got kids, please go pick your kids up quickly before you come back in fellowship. Thank you.